Chapter Number Three of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Chapter Three The Dominion of Canada. Since our arrival at Niagara, we had been on Canadian soil, and in view of the falls which form Canada's greatest glory. But our first experience of the Dominion only really commenced when we left Niagara Station by the Grand Trunk Railway for Toronto. It may have been prejudice, but we thought that the country bore signs of greater prosperity than over the American border. The farms are more English in character, and the cattle in greater abundance. The soil looks richer, and the pretty wooden zigzag fences, which take the place of hedges or railings, look most picturesque. In many places, the blackened stumps of trees showed the recent clearing by fire. From Hamilton, a prosperous town, we ran for nearly 40 miles along the shores of Lake Ontario to Toronto. Toronto is the capital of the province of Ontario, the chief city of Upper Canada, and the Queen City of the West. There is jealous rivalry between Montreal and Toronto. The former has the shipping interest and for a long time held the lead. But Toronto is quickly gaining ground and is the center for a rapidly increasing commercial interest. Five lines of railway converge to her termini. Hamilton and London, both rising places, centralize their commerce here. Lake Ontario supplies water transit to Montreal and the ocean, and the numerous banks do a thriving trade. In 1871, the census of the population was 50,600. Ten years later, it was 80,445. Wide streets of great length, avenues of trees, and churches are the chief characteristics of Toronto. The churches are built from the voluntary subscriptions of the congregations, the pastors being chosen and maintained by them. There is no state church, and the dissenters have as fine places of worship as the Episcopal body. The Metropolitan Methodist Church, with almost cathedral proportions, was built by Mr. Punchin, the American Spurgeon, and it compares as advantageously to the tabernacle as do the churches to the chapels of England. Toronto abounds in pretty suburbs, chief among them being Rosedale. The comfortable wooden houses of the upper and middle orders convey an idea of prosperity with their neat gardens, a swinging hammock in the creeper-covered veranda, and the family sitting out in the cool of the evening. The provincial parliament is a dingy building, but Osgood Hall, or the law courts, opened in 1860 by the Prince of Wales and called after the chief justice of that day, is a very fine stone edifice complete in all its arrangements. There are full-length portraits of the chief justices in succession, which being continued will form a very complete legal gallery of local talent. There are 14 judges receiving $5,000 a year, nominated by the Governor General from local men. The bar and solicitors are united as in America and work together in firms and are both eligible for judicial preferment and have a like right of audience. The Toronto University is second only to Harvard on the American continent. The lecture rooms, hall, museum, and library are all worthy of the fine Gothic building. 
There are 600 students, many of whose families coming to reside in Toronto add much to the pleasantness of society. We stayed three days at Toronto. Mr. Hodgins, QC, Master in Chancery, was most kind in introducing my husband to some of the chief political men. To Mr. Mackenzie, the late Liberal Premier, Mr. Blake, the present leader of the opposition, Mr. Ross, the Minister of Public Education, and others. The latter minister showed us over the normal school for the instruction of teachers. It has a well-arranged library and museum, and copies of many works of the old masters and busts of the principal men in British history. Toronto is considered the most English of all the Canadian towns, and the Torontons pride themselves on this and take a keen interest in home affairs. The previous night's debate in Parliament is on the breakfast table, cabled over and aided by five hours difference between the time of Greenwich and that of the Dominion, it appears in the first edition. We dined with Mr. Goldwyn Smith, the distinguished Oxford professor of history, who, after a long sojourn in the United States and Canada, has settled with his wife at Toronto. Their house is delightfully old-fashioned. Though in the center of the town, the garden and some of the original forest trees are still preserved to it, and it contains the tail end of family collections, valuable bits of china, busts by Canova and Thorwaldsden, ivory carvings, morsels of jade, and some relics of the first settlers. Amongst the latter are some wine glasses belonging to General Simcoe, the first governor-general in 1794, which are without feet, to be returned when empty. Wednesday, July 23rd. We left Toronto in the afternoon by the steamer Algeria, coasting along the low-lying country of the left bank of Lake Ontario. Touching at the various thriving towns, we judged by the crowd who came down to the pier that it was the usual thing for the population to stroll down in the evening and watch for the arrival of the steamer. All night we were crossing Lake Ontario, and at four o'clock the next morning, in the gray dawn, touched at Kingston. We waited there an hour for daylight, in which to approach the Thousand Islands. As we passed out, we saw the gilt dome of the famous military college. In the freshness of the early morning, with the sun just flushing the waters and warming life into the bare and purple rocks, we wound in and out of the narrow channel of the Thousand Islands. It is the largest collective number of islands in the world. Some are formed of a few bare rocks just appearing on the surface of the water. Others are large enough for a villa, a garden, and a boathouse, and others again for farming purposes. Their uniform flatness causes some disappointment and mars their collective beauty, though here and there one may be singled out for the prettiness of its woods. At Alexandra Bay, a familiar summer resort with two monster hotels, the St. Lawrence opens away from the lake and we are descending between its monotonous banks for some hours. The increasing swiftness of the current and the prevailing thrill of excitement of all on board warns us of the approach of the Long Sioux Rapids. We see a stormy sea and surging in huge billows. All steam is shut off. Four men are required at the wheel to keep the vessel steady as we shoot the rapid. One minute we are engulfed, the next rising on the crest of the wave. Intense and breathless excitement is combined with the exhilaration of being carried in a few minutes down the nine miles of descent. Every now and again a peculiar motion is felt 
as if the ship was settling down as she glides from one ledge of rock to another. We pass some smaller rapids, but it is late in the afternoon before Baptiste, the Indian pilot, comes on board for the shooting of the great Lachine Rapid. Whirlpools and a storm-lashed sea mingle in this reach, for the shoal water is hurled out among the rocks. The greatest care and precision of skill are necessary, for with lightning speed we rush between two rocks, jagged and cruel, lying in wait for the broaching of the vessel. The steamer wrecked last year lies stranded away on the rocks as a warning. These natural barriers to the water communication between Montreal and the west are overcome by canals running parallel with the rapids. The Ottawa forms a junction with the St. Lawrence at the pretty village of St. Anne's, which has become famed by Moore's well-known Canadian boat song. Row, brothers, row, the steam runs fast, the rapids are near and the daylight's past. Soon as the woods on shore grow dim, we'll sing at St. Anne's our evening hymn. The Victoria Bridge, a triumph of engineering skill, spans the river above Montreal. It is built of solid rocks of granite, a mile and three-quarters in length, and it is in passing under its noble arches that we get our first view of Montreal, the metropolis of the Dominion. A filmy mist lay over the city of Spires, spreading up even to the sides of Mount Royal, the wooded mountain that rises abruptly and stands solitary guard behind the city. The golden dome of the old market of Bon Secours and the twin spires of the Cathedral of Notre Dame loomed faintly out from its midst. Before us there is a sea frontage of three miles, vessels of 5,000 tons being able to anchor beside the quay. 150 years ago, the French evacuated Montreal, but you might think it was but yesterday, so tenaciously do the lower orders cling to the tradition of their founder, Jacques Cartier. The quaint gabled houses and crooked streets of the lower town, the clattering and gesticulating of the white-capped women marketing in Bon Secours, remind one of a typical Normandy town. Notices are posted in French and English, and municipal and local affairs are conducted in both languages. The post office, the bank, and the assurance company make a fine block of buildings as the nucleus of the principal street of Notre Dame, but all the others are crooked, narrow, and ill-paved. The Catholic cathedral in the quiet square is very remarkable for its double tier of galleries and for being painted and decorated gaudily from floor to roof. The Young Men's Christian Association has erected a number of its fine buildings at Montreal. The society seems to thrive and be doing an enormous work of good through the length and breadth of the American continent. We found it well housed in every conceivable town we visited, and what was our surprise when later we found it had penetrated even to the Sandwich Islands and that the YMCA was one of Honolulu's finest buildings. Sunday, July 26th. We went to morning service at the English Cathedral of Christ Church. The interior is bare and unfinished at present, but it is the best specimen of English Gothic architecture on the Western continent. There was a good mixed choir of men and women. We had a charming drive in the afternoon up Mount Royal from which the city takes its name. Fine houses and villas standing in their own gardens lie around the base, and the ascent through luxuriant groves of sycamore trees is so well engineered as to be almost imperceptible. You do not realize how high you are till the glorious panorama opens out before you and you stand on a platform. Montreal at your feet, 
the broad river flowing to right and left, and the blue mountains on the horizon line. We returned by the cemetery, a square mile, laid out in avenues and shady walks. Flowers blossoming on the graves and smooth-shaven turf made it a garden and favorite drive and walk. At the entrance was a notice, a sarcasm on human nature, desiring persons wishing to return from funerals by the mountain drive to remove their mourning badges. That evening we dined with Mr. and Mrs. George Stephen in their beautiful house in Drummond Street. He is the president of the Canadian Pacific Railway. In two years' time, this railway will run from ocean to ocean and will join the Atlantic and Pacific, opening up the unlimited lands of the great Northwest, so rich in mineral wealth and containing the best wheat-growing country in the world. This discovery of the Northwest has altered the whole aspect of affairs in Canada, and by bringing into habitation a country as large as the United States laid the foundation of an immense future for our great possession. 36,000 men are now working on the railway, and it will be completed in half the time of the contract, viz. five years instead of ten. Monday, July 27th. Three hours by rail, through a thinly populated district and backwoods roughly cleared by burning, brought us to a gloriously golden sunset against which rose the spires of the Dominion Houses of Parliament at Ottawa. Ottawa was only a small town with about 4,000 inhabitants in 1867. All ask, why was it chosen as the seat of government, which previously had been at Quebec, Montreal, and Toronto alternately? A minister's wife traveling with us in the train laughingly gave us the answer. Quebec refused to vote for Montreal, Montreal for Quebec, and between them there was always warring jealousy. Toronto would have voted for Montreal if Quebec had been willing to do the same. The authorities at home, it is said the Queen herself, taking the map, pointed to Ottawa as being equidistant from all and on the borders of both Upper and Lower Canada. A magnificent pile of buildings accordingly rose, containing two legislative halls for the Senate and the House of Commons, both the same size as their English originals, and other public offices. The Parliament buildings are built off buff freestone with many towers and miniature spires and have a very fine frontage of 1,200 feet surmounted by the iron crown of the Victoria Tower. The octagonal tower contains a library of 40,000 books open not only to members but to all the inhabitants of the town. In the center stands a full-length marble statue of the Queen by Marshall Wood. The members speak in French or English at will, and all notices of motions are in both languages. Timber lugging is the great trade of Ottawa. As seen from the upper town, the lower presents the appearance of one vast timber yard. Masses of piles line the banks and cover the surface of the stream. These piles are cut in the winter from the back forests and floated down some 100 miles. At Ottawa, they pass into the yards through what is called a timber slide to avoid the dangerous channel of the Chaudière Falls. Here they are lashed together to form rafts, houses being built for the men who drift down on them to Quebec. From thence they are shipped to all parts of the world, principally to England. We went over one of these large timber mills and Eddie's match manufactory, both immensely interesting, with the perfection of machinery, entirely superseding any manual dexterity, and driven by the neighboring water power. 
The La Chaudière Falls, so called from the cauldron into which they seethe and boil, though not of a great height, have been sounded to 300 feet without touching the bottom. They contain a very angry, copper-colored element. We drove out to Rideau Hall, the residence of the Governor-General, who was away at the time. We found a very deserted, miserable building, about which the only sign of life was a sleepy policeman. A tobogging slide seemed to usurp the greater part of the garden. The Ottawa public was much offended by a recent prohibition forbidding entrance to the park, which has hitherto been free to all. There is a little occurrence which will always remain connected in our minds with Ottawa, an example which we certainly found followed nowhere else. Our driver, even after considerable pressure, refused to take more than his ordinary fare. Ottawa, other than the Parliament buildings, which are alone worth coming to see, is the dullest and most primitive of towns. C. was, however, glad to have been there as it gave him the opportunity of meeting the ministers of inland revenue and agriculture and other authorities and hearing their views on rapid development of Canada. Returning to Montreal, we took the night boat to Quebec. A golden, glorious sunset, sinking behind purple clouds, was reflected in the water, and this was succeeded by a trail of silver light from the newly risen crescent moon. Tuesday, July 29th. At 7 a.m. on a cloudy morning, from the deck of the steamer we were looking up at Quebec, perched Gibraltar-like on an inaccessible promontory of precipitous rock formed by the junction of the River St. Charles with the St. Lawrence. The narrow streets of the lower town, with their picturesque red-tiled roofs and overhanging gables, seem at first sight as if they were entirely cut off from the upper town by a shelving mass of rocks. However, we were soon wending our way upwards by a street so steep that it could only be likened to climbing a mountain. The houses on either side seemed also to be climbing the roof of the houses above, the upper story being on a level with the second floor of its neighbor. Any sand there ever has been was long washed down by the rain, leaving a stony surface as a precarious foothold for the poor struggling horses. This was the more circuitous route for carriages. A nearer one for pedestrians lay in the perpendicular flight of steps cut out in the face of the rocks leading immediately to Dufferin Terrace. This terrace was called after Lord Dufferin, the most popular of governors-general, and is built on the old buttresses and platform formerly occupied by the Chateau of St. Louis. It is a favorite resort of the townspeople, perhaps as being the only level ground, so far as we could see in the town, but probably more so on account of the beautiful view it commands over the river. Vessels of all classes and sizes, coming from all parts of the world, but more specifically from England, were anchoring in the broad basin formed by the confluence of the two rivers. Immediately beneath us were the wharves of the old town, where we could see two or three colliers discharging coal, and even here in the still morning air the rattling of the chains as the crane was swung to and fro. On the opposite side rose the fortified bluff of Point Levy, and on the other the St. Charles winding away up its peaceful valley. The white houses of Beaufort form a straggling line almost as far as the Montmorency Falls, which latter seem only a speck in the distance, there was a light morning mist floating away over the opposite heights, and the murmur of the busy hum of life reached us from below. 
The governor's garden, facing the road on the opposite side, is only an enclosure overgrown with rank weeds and grass, but it contains the obelisk erected to the joint memory of Wolfe and Montcalm. It is a novel idea to combine the names of the victorious and conquered, but it shows a true appreciation of the two generals who each gave up their life for their country in the hour of battle. In the Ursuline convent nearby, we see Montcalm's grave, said to have been made by the bursting of one of the enemy's shells during the bombardment, with the inscription in French, Honor to Montcalm, fate, in depriving him of victory, rewarded him by a glorious death. There are some very quaint old buildings and curious bits of architecture in out-of-the-way corners, and the town altogether has an old-world look, as if life were passing it by. The outside of the Catholic cathedral is homely and irregular, and very damp and musty inside. But attached to one of the pillars is a fine crucifixion by Van Dyck, and the adjoining seminary has quite a large collection of pictures highly prized by the inhabitants, though by artists unknown to fame. The Laval University, chartered by the Queen in 1852, is the most modern building in Quebec. The population is almost entirely French, and the maintenance of their language and institutions was guaranteed to them at the conquest. Descendants of the old noblesse still linger here, preserving among themselves the tradition of their forefathers in a circle of society renowned for its polish and refinement, preserving, too, in its entirety, the purity of the mother language. They do not mix at all with the English. The citadel is gloriously situated on the high ground above the town, surrounded by walls and ramparts, but our approach to it was under the following untoward circumstances. We hired an ungainly cabriolet, a vehicle on two wheels, with a narrow board in front, on which the driver, a raw-boned Irish boy in our case, driving a sorry steed, was seated. After going up a very steep hill, the entrance to the fortress is over a wooden drawbridge guarded by massive chain gates. The hollow sound of the wood frightened the horse beyond control, and we discovered then that he could go, when he turned and bolted down the hill. We only prevented ourselves from being pitched out head foremost by clinging on to the sides of the old-fashioned hood. The driver was powerless, and C eventually stooped over and jerked the reins happily with success. We must have caused much amusement to the soldiers looking out from the guardhouse window. The governor-general's residence is part of the low stone building in the courtyard, the remainder of the citadel being used for barracks. The windows on the riverside command a superb view. In the absence of Lord Lansdowne, Lord and Lady Melgund entertained us most hospitably and very kindly took us on the river in the police launch after luncheon, near enough to obtain a good view of the beautiful Montmorency Falls. The volume of water is powerful in the first instance, but dwindles into fringes and evaporates altogether in mist at the base. A storm was gathering on the heights as we returned, and a dense bank of fog rolled down the river. The thunder muttered overhead, and a rift in the clouds let a curious light stream over the roofs of the town. And then, closing up, the black clouds swept towards us, creeping up Diamond Cape, till the citadel above loomed out white and ghostly from the surrounding clearness. In a downpour of tropical rain, we reached the wharf. We should like to have managed an expedition from Quebec to the beautiful Saguenay River, 
combining a visit to Sir John MacDonald, the present premier. But that great nemesis, time, was already beginning to pursue us. We left Quebec the next morning, passing again through Montreal at five in the afternoon and sleeping at Plattsburgh on the shores of Lake Champlain. It was a great disappointment to us not to be able to see more of Canada, but we shall hope to pay it a more extended visit on some future occasion. It offers as great attractions to the lover of nature as to the sportsman, and affords a glorious and unlimited field for the emigration of men and women since the opening up of the Far West by the Canadian Pacific Railway. End of Chapter 3 Read by Sharantha Bedigay, Toronto, Canada August 2021